this is a um, this is, I guess, a team meeting uh, that a uh, Lieutenant General Wilhelm von Tietzing and Hunning uh, had um, with the Prussian army uh, during the time that Village was out uh, doing sort of field drills because Village and um, his colleagues, some of the officers had started some book clubs, started reading sort of radical philosophy, uh, Marx, Engels, Hegel, that type of thing. So they had to have a little team meeting. They had to get the team together. And uh, the big boss came in, and uh, this is what he said. Recent incidents compel me to have a serious word with you. Unfortunately, there are people in our midst who are making it their business to seduce young people and sprinkle poison in their hearts. Do you know what it means to be a socialist and a communist? I will tell you. It means to plot behind His Majesty's back. Communism wants to take the property of the quiet, prosperous citizen and distribute it equally. He will use all means to accomplish this. Rape, arson, robbery, murder. Such is the communist pest. It is preached by clever, witty people and is therefore dangerous for young, inexperienced minds. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was great just because, I mean, we're getting, we're getting basically the same stuff uh, in the media uh, and getting riled up on you know, social media all the time. And I, just, I thought that was a very interesting uh, <laughs> little bit there that you found. Yeah, I was really excited to find it, uh, especially considering that communism and even the term socialism were, were such new terms in the uh, early 1840s when this when this incident took incident took place. So, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it, it, I, I was I was happy to use it, and uh, and it, it certainly has some resonance today. From the shadow of Rockford Tower in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, I'm Rob, and this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast, Carl on the Levels from a Secure Remote Location. I am incredibly excited to speak uh, this evening with David T. Dixon. David is a historian and an author of the new book, Radical Warrior, August Village's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. David, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So before we start, I wanted to mention the concept of B-list history. Um, the esteemed Reconstruction historian Eric Foner has commented that the history that is taught in schools doesn't explain in any way how we got here. Um, the radicals of history, uh, the game changers, are often excluded from the history that's taught, and their backgrounds and motivations are obscured as time passes, uh, and the stories are lost to history and an almost unknown uh, today. Um, your work is basically a direct attempt to sort of uh, address this deficiency. Um, can you give us a little background on uh, how you got interested in it and um, how you sort of got to doing it? Yeah, so uh, I'm one of the, uh, the hated liberals uh, from corporate America. I spent 35 years in, uh, in corporate America feeding, feeding the beast. And, uh, and uh, once I got caught up in that, I, I really wanted to to try to retire and spend the rest of my life doing what I love, which is writing history and, and particularly biography. So uh, when I looked at, at, that, uh, at that path, it was, uh, it was apparent to me that most of the publishers now are focusing on the safe plays. So, you know, if you're talking about Civil War history, for example, it's, it's Lincoln, Grant, 
Sherman, Lee, the typical players. And, and I really wasn't interested in that. So I was interested to your point in finding the, uh, the lesser known figures who uh, had an important connection or an important impact on American history. And so I decided to focus on, on those folks. And so it's not just the, uh, it's not just the radicals of history that have been forgotten. It's, it's whole classes of people, uh, uh, women in particular, uh, women's history is is still in its in its infancy. Uh, it's it's immigrant history. It's uh, it's transnational history. There there are so many areas that have been neglected, and uh, fortunately now with uh, with technology, I think you're seeing a lot of a lot of people who are able to publish these stories uh, on blogs and and uh, and other social media and, and get these names in front of uh, of the mass public. So uh, I'm excited to be a part of that. Yeah, that's interesting because my background is similar uh, coming from a corporate experience that, um, you know, sort of fed the monster. And as I was taking notes on the discussion with you, uh, it's just interesting that, you know, Village himself sort of comes from that. Um, you know, I have a bit in here about class trader late, late, later, and, um, you know, I think we'll get into that a little bit. And I think that that hits both of our personal experiences somewhat. Um, yeah, a, a friend of uh, the podcast uh, and the historian and teacher, Professor Harvey J.K., edited uh, a book of essays and speeches titled Take Hold of Our History and Make America Radical Again. And that thesis um, is that real change comes from radical ideas that sometimes get lost um, to history. One of uh, Professor K.'s favorite subjects is the American revolutionary philosopher and writer Thomas Paine. And you start your book with an account of a celebration of pains at which uh, Village gives uh, a German language address in Ohio. Um, can you talk about that choice? Because again, because I, I understand pain in that way, it was a very interesting and appropriate choice, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, uh, yeah, the choice of pain was really conscious uh, and you're right. I mean, he fits into, even though, even though his, his name is fairly well known, his, his impact has been forgotten and it began to be forgotten as early as uh, as the time of his death, which I think was in the 1820s or 1830s, so by that time uh, he had been reviled for his uh, his uh, incendiary statements against George Washington, for example. Uh, his uh, people accused him of of being a uh, uh, godless. He he was certainly he was certainly not godless. He he was he was he was definitely a deist. Uh, like Thomas Jefferson, for example. So, so again, this is probably uh, an A-list player from the 18th century who became a B-list player in the 19th century. And, uh, but a certain segment of the population there in the 19th century uh, still understood where where uh, pain was coming from in terms of his humanism, in terms of his uh, impact on on the American Revolution, and and in terms of his uh, his vision for what what society should look like, and so uh, it's it was it's no surprise that the radicals of the mid nineteenth century in America clung to to Paine's vision as as something to emulate and and something to try to celebrate. Yeah, it was, it was a quite interesting uh, way to start. Um, so let's just get into uh, the man himself. Um, the early life of August Village, uh, he was a, came from an upper class 
sort of military family. His father was in the military, and, and after his father's death at an early age, he was sort of sent away um, to be brought up um, in an intellectual environment and then to go into the king's military um, subsequently. Can you talk a little bit about his early life, um, how he was brought up, and how that sort of uh, influenced um, the kind of thinker that he was uh, in his uh, early teens and 20s? Yeah, so it's really interesting that uh, that uh, his father like you said, passed away young. So his mother was left with two small children. And so uh, Vilish and his older brother were actually split up. And the older brother went to live in with a uh, Prussian army lieutenant, a retired Prussian army lieutenant, and took the same path that Vilish did later on. They both went into the military and they both went to the uh, the Prussian military schools and became lieutenants in the in the army. But their upbringings were quite different. So as you mentioned, uh, August Village was, was uh, raised in the household of uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was one of the, uh, you, you might say, the, the father of, uh, of German uh, liberal uh, religious thought at that time. So uh, he, was cho- he was told to question everything and uh, was exposed to a lot of uh, liberal ideas. And in fact, uh, Schleiermacher himself was, was accused of being a closet Republican uh, later in, in life. So uh, as a result of that, I think he, he brought an unusual uh, perspective to, uh, to what he found in the, in, the Prussian, uh, in the Prussian army. And then he began associating with, uh, with a number of uh, of other more open-minded uh, uh, Russian military officers. And as you mentioned earlier, they formed a reading circle and uh, started reading not only Hegelian uh, uh, works, but also uh, uh, works by, by many radical uh, philosophers like Feuerbach and, and others, and, uh, and began to question authority, which was quite a, quite a dangerous thing to do. In, uh, in the Prussian military system and in the uh, 1830s and 1840s. Yeah, it's really fascinating because it's like a, a two-track existence um, coming up in military schools, Prussian military schools and Prussian military training, um, you know, in a, you know, you know, in service of His Majesty the King, yet um, involved in really radical um, Republican and, and communist thought. Um, I wanted to read this one paragraph you you gave because I think it summarizes sort of his thinking um, at this time, and I just thought it was interesting. Village believed in a universal human consciousness. He saw the universe as a dynamic and self-existing whole in which humans evolved to benefit their fellow beings while sustaining their individual selves. These conflicting drives represent a personal struggle to reconcile death and immortality, self-interest, and charity. The perfection of humanity would not come from Christianity or politics, in Village's opinion. It would be achieved through labor. Existing systems should be recognized so that people could follow their natural inclination to work in a community for the common good. Only then could individuals abandon selfish inclinations and become fully realized as, quote, the reconciled man, the man of the community. Village had little idea what this concept might look like in the real world. For the time being, he continued his quest for understanding within the confines of his military career. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, can, can you talk a little bit about where that sort of wound up 
um, leading him through his career and some of the conflicts he had um, while he was still an army officer, uh, because it's a, sort of an interesting back and forth as he goes through sort of his career in the late 1830s and into the 1840s. Yeah, so uh, so one of the things I think that was challenging for uh, for the king and the Prussian military higher ups was, on the one hand, they they were enforcing strict discipline and, as you mentioned, strict loyalty to the crown. But on the other hand, uh, they tried to to provide a well-rounded uh, education, uh, a classical education, if you will, for for their soldiers. So they encouraged them to uh, to to read and think outside of uh, of the military realm. So so there was this inherent push and pull between uh, trying to trying to make them more well-rounded uh, officers, which they felt would produce uh, more uh, more efficient soldiers, and keeping them uh, under the control or under the influence of the crown. So I think that was the, the, the big challenge. So when Village started uh, formulating those ideas that you just mentioned, uh, he, really didn't, he really didn't have an understanding of how that might work outside of this, the 17 years that he had just spent in the confines of this military environment. So he started reaching out to friends and the first uh, friend he, he reached out to kind of a mentor, a, a fatherly figure, had a concept uh, which he called the brotherhood. And he, but this concept was tied up uh, with the uh, Protestant church at that time. And uh, Village, even though he was, uh, he was raised as a Protestant, uh, as he grew to adulthood, was becoming more and more skeptical of organized religion in general. So uh, whereas uh, Village first joined the Brotherhood earlier in his career, as, he, as we get closer and closer to him parting ways uh, with the Prussian military, uh, he becomes less and less interested in trying to uh, pursue these uh, humanistic goals through uh, through a religious superstructure. So uh, by the time he gets, by the time uh, this all crisis comes to a head in 1846 and 1847, uh, Village is, is now searching for other, other influences, other, other people who can provide him uh, with uh, a more secular uh, path to uh, social justice. Yeah, so this is the this is the sort of one of the big turning points is before we get to sort of the revolutions of, of 48, which resonate all the way through um, the book and all the way through the Civil War, the American Civil War. Um, there's this moment where this conflict finally comes to a head. I guess Village has been assigned to some post sort of out in the uh, on the north coast of Germany out uh, away from everybody because everybody knows he's a he's a radical he's a troublemaker him and his friends uh, and finally finally he, he 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 decides he's he's going to quit and it 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 resonated with me because he has to uh, call back to the Rhineland try to get get himself out of where he is quickly and move back to where he needs to be um, and it, I talked about the class trader sort of ideal um, I I went with a group of activists about two years ago to the office of the U.S. Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester uh, to lobby with my friends for Medicare for All. And we went around a conference table. We were all sat down and everybody said their name and, and where they were from. And, and I 
when it got to me, I gave my name, but I only represented myself. Um, I, you know, I had a podcast, but I think I was still working at the bank at the time. So I just said that I was a class trader and she had never heard that term. Uh, and so I, I had to explain to her what it was. And it reminded me in the scene of the book where village does get back to the Rhineland and he takes a job, I think as a carpenter and he just walks to work every day uh, in his laborers clothes, uh, past soldiers that he used to outrank um, and did, you know, that's just what he felt like he should do. And there's a great quote on page 37 that I noted that I'll read and then I'll let you talk about sort of this little interregnum in his life. Um, this is what he said. My strength is to feel more and more penetrated by this spirit, to be content with it, to be able to give up everything without pain. I am filled with joy as I look at myself, as I have become a vagrant to others, but a free man to myself. And I thought that that was uh, really interesting. And, and this is sort of the transition right up into the revolution um, for, for Village. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that time. Sure. And, and I think it's important to, to understand what a, what a wrenching uh, decision this was for him to uh, leave the military. This is a track he had been on for his whole life. His father was a military hero. Uh, and people in his class were expected to do this service. So on the one hand, he has this he has this uh, this tremendous respect and and tremendous devotion to his his fatherland. Uh, but on the other hand, he just cannot square uh, that that loyalty with what he has seen go on uh, and and the changes that are happening in in industrial industrialized Europe. So. Uh, yeah, so he makes that statement. He finally gets to that point. But but I was most impressed with with the getting to that point and how much he had to give up and sacrifice, uh, you know, alienate his family, leave a 17 year uh, career, renounce his nobility. Uh, and, and there's so many instances where uh, where radicals in U.S. history uh, give up, sacrifice everything. Uh, for their cause. And uh, it's, it's just something that really hit home with me. And I, I just made me wonder how many people today are willing to do uh, what so many men like him did and women uh, at that time. So that, that, that for me was what really got me hooked on, on, on doing this book. Yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking a lot while I was reading it that there's a and and trying to you know map it over today's sort of environment because there's a there's a real spiritual aspect to it, uh, but it's not a necessarily a religious aspect. Um, someone like John Brown had it, but it was a, now that was a, more of a religious aspect. But Paine uh, really didn't. Uh, while he respects sort of the deist idea of philosophy, didn't really subscribe to any you know, organized thing, but that didn't change the fact that there was a spirituality to it and a real belief in a clarity of, of morality, really. Um, and you, you mentioned a woman. So Matilda uh, Aneke, actually, when she encountered Village um, on the way to, uh, to, to battle in the revolution, um, she mentioned that. She, oh, here it is. Uh, his face was paler, his head and beard longer. His whole appearance was almost spiritual. And I thought, like, that's the kind of thing that's missing because to, to be able to make these sort of grueling decisions um, for what is, what is a greater good but less for you, 
um, it, it's very, it's just an interesting sort of path to take. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I think there's a little bit of showmanship in that as well. So there, there, it's interesting when you know when I went back and looked for illustrations for the book, uh, and so for some of the radical poets of the time, and for uh, early images of Villish, it's and it, it, and even Villish himself, as you mentioned, parading. Oh, in his carpenter's apron with the axe over his shoulder in front of his old uh, comrades. Uh, all those images also are Christ-like images. And so I don't think it is, I don't think it's a, uh, a coincidence that he portrayed himself that way. And that also that Matilda, as you mentioned, also wrote about him that way. So whereas I do think he was, he was, completely imbued with the spirit of revolution, if you will, they were also very good at, at uh, projecting the, these images that would resonate uh, with, uh, with a populace that, let's face it, was very much a religious uh, uh, people at that time, particularly the proletariat. So the revolts of 48 uh, begin um, across Europe. Uh, in France and Germany. Um, can you talk a little bit about the first wave of those revolts? And I do want to touch on after that um, some time that Village spent in exile in France because I think it's uh, there's some stories there that are sort of interesting t uh, to illustrate um, sort of the, the personality of the man, I think. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the revolts of 48, sort of the history behind those and um, the, I guess, the failures at that time of them. Uh, but how they went. Sure, sure. So I think um, one, a couple of important things to understand. First of all, um, if uh, and you're probably old enough to remember the, uh, the uh, Arab Spring, right? So sure. when we had the Arab Spring, I don't remember what year that was in the, in the 2010 or so. But anyway, uh, it, it very much this this whole 1848 revolution pretty much reminded me of of the Arab Spring in the way that uh, that despite the fact there's no internet no Twitter all of these revolutions break out almost spontaneously uh, there were some uh, there were some democratic revolutions in Switzerland the year before and of course in the years leading up to there particularly in the early 1830s there had been some some rumblings of revolution but. But once revolution broke out in, in France uh, in, in the early in, early in 1848, uh, word got around quickly and all of a sudden you had revolutions breaking out in the Italian states, in the German states, in Vienna, uh, all over Europe. Uh, so I think that's one, one, one thing that's really interesting is that this movement this was truly an international movement, not merely uh, in this context, a, a, a revolution that happened just in the German states. This, this was a, a social problem that existed throughout Europe. And there were, there were all kinds of, uh, of seeds of revolution that had been sown. But as so often happened in the 19th century, it started happening in France. And so, uh, the failure of the French Revolution back in the in the late 1700s, of course, uh, was was very disconcerting and uh, to to the European radicals of the of the mid 1840s. So, 
this their you know the French ideals of liberté, égalité, fraternité. I mean, those that was what they were really after. They were they were not just after uh, political reform. They were they were after social revolution. And the fact that it had, it had ultimately failed in France uh, when this revolution pops up again in Paris in 1848, people all over Europe get excited about it, and uh, you know they they see this as as a way to transform all of Europe, not just these 37 or so uh, German states, and and abolish the monarchy and 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 establish. Uh, democratic republican uh, government all over europe and it starts to happen yeah i mean uh, not only are they uh, they have a lot of international solidarity with france they're in contact with garibaldi in in italy doing basically the same you know uh, sort of appreciating the uh the industrialization and 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 sort of what's going on from the economy and in society and applying the same principles uh, maybe you could talk a little bit, you know, we've, uh, and Carl's been involved with it too, we've started a sort of a small online uh, leftist paper here, uh, independent paper, but those type of things were extremely important with Marx and Engels and everybody to sort of spread while there was no internet, uh, there was a, a lot of information being shared among these, uh, among these networks, uh, which was basically what was driving the solidarity and driving that movement all across Europe. Yeah, and as well as letter writing. So uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Village when he was uh, taking refuge in France between the revolutions. I mean, he was in constant contact with Garibaldi and Mazzini in in Italy, and and uh, and and on two separate occasions was ready to lead German uh, uh, German workers over into Italy and and go down to Sicily and become part of uh, part of that effort. But then, you know, events changed, and and there was another revolution brewing in uh, in the German states, and as well, the there uh, there was a I think about thirty thousand uh, Germans uh, live German workers working in Paris at this time. So when the German revolution uh, started and and stopped and started again. Uh, these these workers were organized. Uh, a poet uh, by the name of Georg Herwig had organized these uh, these German expats, if you will, into a fighting force that would cross the border at at, at a signal and 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 try to participate in 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 a rebellion in their homeland. So, it, to your point, it was very much uh, there was there was a lot of communication going on. Uh, via newspapers and via uh, letters, and and even via via couriers. And in fact, the women courier women played an important role as couriers in these revolutions uh, as well, uh, as they did in the Civil War, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. I noticed there was sort of some foreshadowing, you know, in between the two sort of waves of German revolution in this time in in, in the border town in France. Um, you know, there was a lot of spirit uh, keeping spirits up a lot of like doing I, I you know because uh village was uh, so so trained in sort of military drills and like camaraderie uh they did like military songs as concerts for uh to raise money for everybody who was sort of like uh, in exile or refugees 
Um, you know, it, it was just very interesting how they they were able to operate from that spot in the way that you describe, uh, but still keep the spirit alive and try basically a second surge, uh, sort of sort of later on. Yeah, and and in the meantime, of course, things were changing in France too. So the longer they stayed there, uh, the worse conditions got. At first, when they went over to France, uh, of course. The, the, the French Democratic Revolution had just happened, uh, but by the time they left just uh, about a year later, uh, the forces of reaction were starting to reassert themselves in, in France. And so they, uh, once, once the uh, third uh, rebellion in the German states uh, was defeated in 1849, uh, they were no longer welcome in France. And so they had to, uh, they had to try to find uh, refuge somewhere and that that somewhere ended up for most Europeans, not just the Germans ended up being uh, London. Yeah. So that's sort of where everybody goes in exile. Um, can, before we um, sort of segue into, you know, the 48ers and, and, and the, the American experience, maybe you can talk a little bit about how some of these uh, ideas after the, the revolutions sort of petered out in Europe, what was going on uh, in England with these ideas, what was going on interpersonally between, say, Village and, and Marx, uh, and, 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 and what was brewing before uh, finally Village uh, makes his trip to the United States? Sure. Well, I think, I think there, was, there were two really big issues. Uh, and in my opinion, one of the two big issues that, that caused the failure of these revolutions in most of these countries, not just in the German states. Uh, so the first was that there was not, there was not the expected or the anticipated groundswell of support from the, uh, from the laboring uh, peasants or the uh, proletariat as, as Marx would call them. So uh, this, these were revolutions that were, that were, uh, that were initiated by uh, essentially middle-class intellectuals, uh, artisans, uh, school teachers, uh, university professors, students. Uh, so this wasn't a mass rising of, of, the, of the lowest class of society. In fact, those, those people with probably the exception of France, again, uh, those folks did not rise. Uh, and so, uh, so that was one problem. And the other big problem, which really, uh, which really came to a head in, in London when all of these refugees from the different countries came together is, is there was no, no consensus among the radicals as to uh, what the next steps were, even during the revolution themselves. So the, uh, of course, the reddest of the radicals, like at that time, Marx and, and Villisch, uh, wanted to uh, wanted to violently overthrow the regime. So there was there was some consensus among the radicals, but the radicals were only part of the uh, of of the revolutionary uh, forces, if you will. There were liberals in there that wanted uh, they wanted to uh, a constitutional monarchy, for example. Uh, so there were there was no consensus among the revolutionaries, and so. Not only did that uh, help contribute to the failure of these of these rebellions in 1848, by the time they tried to 
regroup in London and and pursue some type of program going forward, uh, they couldn't agree on anything. And uh, the Communist League was formed in London and and uh, and in just a few months, it, it split into into essentially two factions. Uh, one faction, the more conservative faction, uh, which was headed by Karl Marx, and then Villisch and Karl Schapper were leading the uh, the more radical faction. The difference there is, is Villisch insisted on continued immediate violent revolution and overthrow, where whereas Marx by this time, although he was still a Republican and in and, and certainly a, a communist in spirit, uh, he had decided that uh, that the timing was not right. That that uh, you needed a you needed a, a long term evolution of economic conditions that eventually would result in late stage capitalism and then eventually uh, communism. So uh, Village did not have that uh, that patience and and wanted to go back and and uh fight it out again but uh that wasn't that wasn't happening yeah i mean that's uh your your typical leftist um splintering i think everybody's everybody's familiar with that um sort of that idea reading that reading that section and you know there was um and maybe you can refresh my memory exactly when this happened but there were at that time some sort of um overtures to constitutional restraints for the monarchy some idea now this happened later on when they did consolidate the states but there was you know some back and forth about what would be allowed maybe something would be allowed and and yeah that was um you know you, you can sort of see that reflected you know in, in today's uh, sort of progressive leftist environment too yeah they really they uh i mean if you of course hindsight's 2020 but when you look back on it uh most of the rulers and most of the reactionary forces were, were basically just telling the rebels what they wanted to hear and, uh, and uh, to, to buy them a little time to regroup. And, uh, and it only took, uh, in some cases, uh, a matter of a, a few months for them to regroup, bring their prince back out of exile uh, and reestablish the, uh, uh, the regime. So uh, yeah, it, it was, but like I said, there was no consensus. There was no solidarity, uh, even among the radicals. Uh, so, and that that really contributed to their uh, to their defeat. Yeah. So, uh, emigration to America. Um, a, a lot of the the forty eighters did get uh, you know a hero's welcome uh, in in the immigrant communities. Everyone knew who they were. Everyone knew they were you know leading thinkers, um, leading revolutionaries, uh, and so. They came to America, village being the, the, one of the most prominent um, as, you know, uh, you know, a, as immigrant sort of uh, elite uh, in that sense, at least in, in those political quarters. Um, but they did recognize the same sort of economic conditions. Um, I took a note here. Uh, the historian Joshua Rothman sort of notes that the slave uh, aristocracy in America was empire building. You know, from the Louisiana Purchase to the War of 1812 to the, the Jacksonian annexation of lands to, to large planters, um, the Mexican War and, and annexation of Texas. This was all empire building. And uh, Village, obviously, with now with his background, his revolutionary background, understood this uh, and was prepared with uh, his other German 
uh, workers and revolutionaries to, to heed the call of Lincoln when it came. Um, the one thing I want to touch on is, is, is sort of the, the, in, the immigrant community in Ohio uh, where Village sort of settled uh, in the Cincinnati area. Uh, and the and the, and again the importance of of Republican newspapers of radical newspapers um, there were many in that area uh, and also the importance of sort of like social clubs Turner's men's clubs working men's clubs and that type of thing to help sort of um, build these ideas at the level of the proletariat and not at the level of say the the petite bourgeoisie. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting because. Uh... So Village arrives in America in 1853, and uh, we have an interesting letter uh, that he writes in French uh, to one of his compatriots back in France. And it's it's Village really makes a, a, an interesting turn. He immediately recognizes that the conditions in America are quite different than the conditions in. Europe, right? So, so we've already had the bourgeois revolution, if you will, in 1776, right? So, so we have, we've already have a republic in America, but it's a flawed republic. It's, it's, it doesn't really live up to the, the ancient ideals of, 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 of republican government. As you mentioned, there's a slave aristocracy, uh, and some would argue uh, with an inordinate control over the the uh, the influence of, of the entire government. So, so Village first and foremost is a is a Republican. He abandons communism uh, shortly after he moves to to uh, America, but he doesn't abandon socialism. Uh, what he develops is uh, through his leadership with the. Uh, uh, in, in forming workers unions, uh, the early trade associations. Uh, he's, he's reiterating some of the statements that he made uh, all the way back before he quit the Prussian army in terms of labor being uh, you know, first and foremost uh, uh, part of uh, being a dignified human being is, is respect for labor. So he creates this concept in his mind of a of a, a republic of labor. In other words, instead of having, uh, instead of having a communist society uh, you know, with uh, communes and, and which, which are failing left and right in, uh, in various parts of America at this time, uh, he's decided that that the, the labor unions and the trade associations should replace traditional structures in government. And that not only should laboring people realize full value for their labor, but the, the labor unions and the trade associations would run what was formerly uh, the government. So it's almost, it's 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 a it's a it's almost a proto syndicalist approach. Uh, it's almost Daniel De Leon's uh, work in 1890, uh, about 40 years uh, before its time. So it's 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 an industrial democracy, uh, but always within the context of of say this libertarian idea that labor unions ought to replace 
traditional government. It's not quite anarchy. It's not. It's not really anarchism. It's. It's. It's what I would. What he called a, a social republic. Socialist ideals within a republican context uh, run by labor. Yeah, I mean, it's fleshed out a little later in the book, uh, you know, just in how the local sort of the local local labor labor networks would sort of uh, act uh, in a in a network with more national uh, representation, um, but the the structures of uh, the the bourgeois republic would be there was no place for them, so there was no place for Congress, there was no place for that, and and so it, actually there are some more later on more fleshed out ideas about how this would actually how it could work. Right. Right. So, and, and certainly, you know, people think of, of this abolition movement as, as, uh, as a bunch of religious fundamentalists in, in New England, uh, morally opposed to, uh, to slavery, but it, it goes much deeper and much broader than that. This abolition movement at this time is a, is, is a transnational movement. And, uh, and the idea that of of free labor being the antithesis of of forced labor, I mean, I mean, it's 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 just the battle against slavery uh, is 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 absolutely critical to uh, Villish's vision of this republic uh, maturing into the ideal republic. So. That's that's why he's so committed to uh, to abolishing slavery and forming alliances with local black leaders in in Cincinnati, for example, much much to his peril. Yeah, I mean, he he was definitely willing to uh, to to work with others who, you know, uh, like you said, probably wasn't uh, wasn't the, the greatest uh, for his reputation in context. Uh, but but certainly uh, but certainly was the right idea. I guess he, he was a man ahead of his time in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, so in, in 1861, the call comes and um, Lincoln had actually made a speech, I guess, in Cincinnati uh, before Sumpner. So they were they were ready to they were they were ready to go. Um, now, although Village is now uh, 49 or 50 years old, um, he's he's raring. There's no there's no stopping him. Uh, so he is part of the, the unit that's raised of German immigrants from Ohio and, and Indiana um, and, and prepares them and, and just pre- prepares them for war. Um, but he develops a rapport with his with his boys um, like a family. Uh, he, he, he feeds them well. He treats them well. He speaks to them with respect uh, if they if if they make a mistake, he is a disciplinarian, but he calls them blockheads, which I think is hilarious. Uh, just a funny just a funny word to use to call somebody a blockhead. Um, but yeah, if you maybe we can um, talk about um, the drilling and training up until uh, they start to see action. Um, they do see quite a bit of action, uh, and and then uh, village is is captured at, at Stones River in in, in Tennessee. Um, so maybe you can give us some details leading up to. Um, to the capture. Yeah. So, and just to go back again to, to the Prussian military. So it's really interesting how he combines, uh, as you mentioned, the discipline and uh, all the knowledge that he learned in the Prussian military, but he discards us. He discards some of it too. So he does call his soldiers citizens. Uh, so he dresses them as citizens, not as, as soldiers. And, uh, 
And I, I think it's the, the whole concept of the citizen soldier is something that he believes in uh, very strongly. He has, he, he has no love loss for the, uh, for the West Point trained officer class. Uh, he believes that, uh, that military service ought to be compulsory and that every citizen's obligation is to serve the Republic. So, so yeah, so, so because of his training, his soldiers are, are quickly become, uh, in, in his own regiment, the, uh, uh, the talk of Ohio and Indiana, uh, both with the 9th Ohio and the 32nd Indiana, uh, has a couple of uh, small engagements where where they do uh, where they do very well, and uh, like you say, he ends up um, he ends up in uh, the last days of December in 1862 at uh, at the Battle of Stones River. I, I do have to go back before Stones River and talk about Shiloh, though. Um, his own regiment, the 32nd Indiana. Uh, it's an all-German regiment, and they're at Shiloh, and this is in April of 1862. And uh, before they march into battle, uh, they strike up their favorite song. And what is that song? It's it's La Marseille, the French national anthem. So I think that's a really telling moment that here you have uh, uh, American army soldiers, and they're all German, and yet they're, they're singing the French national, what becomes the French national anthem in French, no less, uh, that gives you an idea of, of, like I said, how how international this 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 movement was. So so he performs well at Shiloh. Uh, he's promoted to brigadier general. They do end up at Stones River, and uh, at Stones River, the the entire Union right is is overrun on the first day of the battle. Uh, Villish is captured and uh, ends up uh, being transported throughout the South, uh, imprisoned for several weeks in Atlanta uh, before he ends up in the notorious uh, Libby prison in uh, Richmond, Virginia, where he spends uh, three or four months. Yeah, I want to stop here and mention uh, the art of Adolf Metzer. Metzner, excuse me. Uh, so there is a German private um, in this uh, in this company who is an artist, a, a pencil and, and pen artist, and was able to produce all of these beautiful sketches of village and camp with a pet raccoon, uh, village village on his horse with some other generals, uh, just these beautiful pictures. Because there's not a lot. There's I didn't notice many daguerreotypes or other things that you'd see uh, in this day and age. Uh, or uh, in that time of some of the other more uh, esteemed figures that people know. And so these sketches were, were, uh, were, were extremely interesting. Um, did, did, uh, when, when you saw those, you must have thought that was a neat discovery, and I'm glad that they were able to be included in the book. Yeah, they're actually uh, a fellow by the name of Mike Peak. He lives in Indiana, and he has uh, quite an interest in the uh, German regiments in general, and the 32nd Indiana in particular. He actually published a book just a few years ago uh, through uh, the Indiana Historical Society, which includes color images. I believe it's out of print now. I was able to get a, obtain a copy. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're very, very interesting uh, images, a lot of personalities. The, the interesting thing is I mentioned Shiloh, which was the first real 
huge bloodletting battle of, of the Civil War. Everything kind of changed after Shiloh. And Metzner's art changes dramatically after Shiloh. So you see him, uh, most of his art before Shiloh is uh, camp hijinks and uh, various soldiers uh, cavorting with locals. And, uh, and then at Shiloh, you see uh, soldiers with their heads blown off, horses contorted into macabre uh, positions. Uh, and his art becomes very dark after witnessing that type of, uh, of bloodshed. So, uh, so it's interesting to see it through the lens of an artist and, and, and to really understand the impact, the psychological impact that this terrible uh, conflict must have had on, on, on all the men. Yeah. So, um, after he, he, Village is uh, is released um, from uh, the Richmond prison in a in a swap in a in a prisoner swap, and um, before long he's back out in the field with his boys. You can't keep him, you know. You can't keep him down. He's got to be back out there. He's fifty two or fifty three, I think, at this point. Uh, but he goes back out, uh, and 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 he is uh, basically the hero of Missionary Ridge. Um, there's a great quote in here from a from a reporter. Um, from the New York world uh, after the battle and uh, about uh, Village's brigade says, I don't believe history can furnish a parallel to this feat. The most brilliant dash ever made by the French army has been eclipsed. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, this particular battle and, 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 and how it ended. And, and um, probably I, I would say uh, Village's uh, biggest uh, success of the civil war. Yeah, and, and uh, that particular battle was a real turning point. What had happened just a, a few months previous is uh, the Battle of Chickamauga, which uh, Village also uh, performed, uh, frankly, in a, in a legendary matter in a losing effort in that battle. It was a terrible loss for the, for the Union Army, and they actually retreated back into Chattanooga, which was a critical uh, supply depot uh, and, and gateway really to Atlanta and, and the rest of the deep South. So they, so they, they, they pulled back the union army pulls back after Chickamauga and to Chattanooga. And, uh, basically the Confederates lay siege to, to the army and the town. Uh, and, uh, this battle of missionary Ridge is where the union army breaks out of that siege and storms up this, uh, this hill. And, and of course, if you're writing a book about someone like this, you, you, you uh, naturally you visit all of these places, and if you you could see the topography there, you could you could understand what a what an incredible feat it was not only for Villish's men but for all of the 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 uh, members of 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 the Union Army that stormed that hill. So uh, cannons trained uh, well. First they had to take the rifle pits at the bottom of the hill, and then of course they had cannon trained down on them from the heights. Uh, pulling themselves up by the by the uh, roots of uh, branches and shrubs uh, to, uh, while being fired on it was it was a pretty uh, pretty unusual feat and uh, like you said uh, not only village but but many many uh, uh, brigades and and uh, and regiments uh, deserve a lot of credit for that uh, and again when Sherman takes Atlanta it's only because he's a, he's able to have a a supply base in Chattanooga to draw from, and so that it 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 it's really is one of the turning points in the Civil War. Yeah, and just to level set everybody who might not know some of the detail, this is getting to the point where you know, Sherman's uh, getting ready to take to do the Atlanta campaign. 
Um, this is a, a, a huge uh, victory in the support of that. Um, then it continues uh, and uh, to uh, Rasaka. Uh, Village is obviously known known uh, as a as a leader from the front. Uh, he would go in front of uh, of the regiment uh, and the brigade with his back to the enemy to, to reposition and drill them and 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 make sure everybody's in, in doing the right thing. Uh, he was known to do this, uh, and then when they get to Risaka, he, he gets up on some earthworks, I guess, um, to 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 look out uh, and look at the battlefield, uh, and, uh, and and he he's picked off by a sniper uh, in his arm and, and wounded uh, pretty badly, knocks him off the parapet, uh, and, and uh, that pretty much ends his um, his career in action anyway. Um, and, and he's brought uh, back a, a, to a desk job uh, that uh, doesn't really fly with him too well. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, uh, that part of his life and the end of the war, and, and then we can kind of talk about some of the things that happened towards the end of his life and kind of and kind of wrap up. Okay. Yeah. Well, the desk job was interesting because um, during that desk job, there was a there was a uh, con- a young Confederate boy. Really, he was. I think at that time, he had been he had been uh, held in in the prison there in Cincinnati for. Uh, for a couple of years, he was like 18 years old by this this time. And uh, uh, after the war ended, uh, Villish's uh, supervisor, General Hooker, uh, began to wonder why this uh, this uh, young boy who had been sentenced to death had not been executed. And uh, Villish had become friendly with this boy, had him run errands, and uh, you know, it was just he's just some young kid caught up in 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 in, in this terrible war. And, uh, but, uh, village's supervisor made him, uh, or commanding officer, uh, forced him to execute this, this boy. And it really broke his heart. And, uh, he was really, uh, he immediately requested to, to go back into the field. So he spent a small, uh, a few months in the field in Texas, kind of in mop up, uh, exercises, uh, trying to trying to make sure that the uh the spark of revolution in texas didn't reignite and then uh, and then he retired uh, uh from from the military and at the end of the war uh wrote a scathing uh pamphlet uh criticizing the uh the standing army or the regular army of the united states and and advocating that uh, that the united states army uh be composed, as I said earlier, of a citizen's army. Uh, that went nowhere. And yeah, well, uh, once, once, once again, he's he's rattling the cages of the, the most elite people in the military. So exactly, we we can appreciate that. Yeah, and then he makes a then he makes a real bonehead move. Yeah, I want that's my next uh, point, and I think I wanted to kind of to uh, connect this to something else. I spoke I spoke to uh, Richard White about uh, about Reconstruction in the Gilded Age. And about how the, you know, the public service at that point were, were non-paid jobs. And then you just, you could just skim off of the fees that you got for cleaning the streets or, you know, building a bridge or collecting to whatever. Uh, so whatever service, that's sort of how it was done. Uh, so uh, Village gets a position, uh, sort of a public position, uh, but then gets caught up in sort of a scandal because obviously there's a lot of people who don't like him for all of the reasons that we've talked about. Uh, and he's, and he's caught up in, in sort of a, a, a scandal of using money to, to pay another employee, or may, maybe you can sort of give us the details of 
how he got caught up in it. it. It seemed to me like it was a fairly minor and based on my understanding of how public service was was executed, uh, fairly commonplace at the time. Um, but anyway, it, it was um, quite a scandal and, and he did lose his 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 public service seat. Um, so maybe you can talk about that story. Sure. So so understanding Villish, I mean, this is a man who who by all accounts, uh, he had already, of course, renounced his nobility and left a promising career. From that point on, uh, back in his Prussian army days, uh, he lived under very meager circumstances, and he was quite happy living that way. Uh, but his friends were terribly embarrassed for him uh, that he, here was this uh, here was this uh, German war uh, American war hero who was uh, running around in threadbare suits and living in a uh, in the apartment he lived in in Cincinnati was 14 feet wide. Uh, so, but but he was okay with that. But they they talked him into taking this this uh, position as the auditor of Hamilton County, Ohio. Uh, and and like you said, like many of these uh, uh, plum appointments, it was a boondoggle. <laughs> the the uh, he would he, he was allowed to take uh, he was allowed to add uh, uh, delinquent uh, taxpayers to the rolls and then uh, once they hit their budget anything they collected over and above that budget uh, the county auditor was willing to keep but this had been going on uh, for the last four county auditors so they convinced them to take this because they figured okay this would uh, this would set him up for life, and we wouldn't have to uh, wouldn't have to be embarrassed about having one of our big war heroes uh, living like a pauper. Uh, it was a terrible mistake on Villish's part, not only for his image, but also um, I think it it really went against uh, a lot of his principles. And and he was he was also terribly incompetent in the role. He he really he did not not really value or understand uh, money. And uh, and so it was. So he did end up serving serving out his term, and uh, near the end of his term, the uh, one of his rival newspaper editor uh, friends associates came after him. And uh, long story short, is they uh, they ended up uh, reforming the position. Uh, Villish was forced to give back uh, some of the money that he had paid a bookkeeper, uh, which he was supposed to pay out of his own uh, proceeds, if you will. And uh, it was terribly embarrassing for him. And he actually, once that had wrapped up, uh, he, he decided to go back and make a return visit to Europe and try to patch up some of the, uh, some of the family relationships that he had uh, compromised when he uh, particularly his brother, who was still living over there uh, at that time. So he he, he goes back to uh, to Germany in in 1870. Yeah, and uh, I guess those those reconciliation attempts really um, didn't work. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. It it doesn't sound like it was, you know, it was it was a it was a fair effort to sort of explain himself why he renounced his nobility why he was a revolutionary in Europe, you know, why he left, um, but, you know, really got no joy out of, out of those meetings in Germany and then returns as, you know, a much older man and, and basically retires 
uh, to a very small town in Ohio, St. Mary's, Ohio, uh, lives in the main uh, the main hotel there, sort of as a local uh, local hero in a little town um, before he dies, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, he uh, and he actually he actually started a very unsuccessful early socialist party. It was called the People's Party. And it was an Ohio party, and 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 they ran a candidate for governor in 1873. Uh, so he he stayed involved. He was he was involved in the ill-fated uh, liberal Republican movement with Carl Schurz and other German Americans in 1872, which was an anti-Grant uh, movement. So uh, you know he he stayed involved in politics to some point, uh, but I really I, I really think that this. Uh, this misstep with the county auditor position, the scandal that followed really uh, hurt his reputation and, uh, and uh, not as a military hero, but as a role model. And as you mentioned, he was an older man, uh, ends up dying in 1878 at the age of uh, 68, I believe, uh, presumably of a heart attack. And, uh, and uh, the New York Times ends up calling him the, uh, the greatest uh, uh, soldier of German in, in extraction in the in the American Civil War, which I thought was a pretty high compliment. Yeah. I mean, the scene uh, of the the, the, the funeral um, was the funeral for, you know, a Civil War hero, 25,000 or 30,000 people in a procession, um, you know, all of the uh, old army regiments and the veterans uh, coming. Um, I did notice that while I thought it was an interesting detail that while the reconciliation with his brother did not was not um, successful his brother did send back for his gravesite the coat of arms of the von village family to put on his grave which you know he would have fucking hated that but but it's just so fun just a, a funny little detail that his brother i guess wanted to kind of say well no you, you tried to denounce it but you're really one of us in the end and and so there it sits but I mean, he probably, you know, he can't care now, but I'm sure that he, he would have, that would have, uh, that would have ground his gears down a little bit. Absolutely. He's rolling over in his grave every time he would look up at that for sure. Yeah. So I just want to read the last two paragraphs and then maybe wrap up and we can talk about actually um, some of the things about the feelings, part of the, the history of village sort of being forgotten or, or sidetracked because of the feelings about um, just immigrants. Um, his his English never got you know that great. Um, he was sort of passed over for big promotions. He didn't really care. Um, sort of as you were saying about his lifestyle uh, on very little money. He didn't really care about that sort of thing. But it was interesting that you know he never really got the accolades that maybe a um, you know somebody who went to West Point of this and, and did the same stuff would have gotten. Um, but anyway, the last two paragraphs are very interesting, and I think it's a good way to start to close it. Uh, like Karl Marx, Moses Hess was a philosopher, not a soldier. But he understood the mentality of social justice warriors. Hess called Village an apostle of a new secular evangelism who was seeking martyrdom for his beliefs. Even if one no longer believed in God, Hess reasoned, nevertheless, our entire life and aspirations are far more apostolic than ph philosophic. Hess argued for permanent revolution until final victory of the working class was achieved. Village remained loyal to that call from 1848 to the end of his life. Circumstances and environment forced him to adjust his tactics at times, but his core principles never changed. 
Indeed, they formed a prism through which he viewed everything, including the American Civil War. Encouraging and promoting a solution to the social question Village confessed to Fritz and Ecke in 1862 is and will remain the only task of my life. This work alone not only makes life more challenging for me, but in my view, also gives it value. Um, yeah, I mean, it's somebody who uh, really believed what he believed. Uh, it wasn't transactional. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't for himself. Uh, it was a selfless uh, life, um, you know, and, and and didn't even look for the accolades when they would have come. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to give you the last word and just kind of sum up um, sort of what it was like to, to, to be a village scholar. I think you may be the most important August village scholar in the country now. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty small group, but uh... <laughs> I wasn't going to I mean, we don't have to mention how many people are in it. Yeah, well, well, you know, Matt Crispin wanted to write the village biography, but I beat him to it. So, yeah, I remember when he talked about it. I had, I had, you know, vaguely heard of the guy just from reading Civil War history, and I did not know he was a a, a, a communist revolutionary in Europe until Crispin. Crispin was talking about it, and then when the book came, I was like, "Oh, look, somebody's doing it. They're doing it." So you did it. Well, and I think that's. I think it's an interesting thing because here I am, uh, you know. Uh, a veteran of corporate America and, and a liberal uh, politically. And so, but I learned a lot about, uh, I learned a lot about socialism in, in writing this book. And I learned a lot about the commitment that people like Villish, uh, the selfless commitment, as you said, uh, to principle. And so, so I, I think the, the lesson for me is that, uh, and it was really an unexpected lesson because frankly, I was just looking for a great, compelling life story to write about. Uh, but, but I ended up finding this, this, this fellow that can teach us a lot about, uh, about respect for one's fellow human beings, about selfless devotion to a cause, about sacrifice, uh, uh, sacrifice of, of just about everything, one's, one's country, one's family, uh, to, to pursue these social justice ends. And, and you know, for people like myself, uh, who are part of the, the white privilege set, uh, I, feel like, uh, I feel like educating people about people like Village can, can help people like me move further to the left and 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 really start uh, uh, to embrace uh, and be more open to uh, to more radical ideas today I mean it, you know the the uh, it, it kind of reminded me of the the, the book uh, uh, the, the book uh, traitor to his class by about FDR I don't know if you read that book, but uh, but it's a really interesting thing. Here here is another man who was a trade, as you mentioned at the outset, was a traitor to his class, who basically abandoned everything to seek uh, social justice. And 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 to me, that was really the most inspiring thing about writing about this man. Well, the book is Radical Warrior: August Village's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General uh, David T. Dixon. Thanks so much. It was a it was a pleasure to, to talk to you. Yeah, same. Same to you, Rob. Have a great have a great evening. You too. Thanks a lot. Yeah.